Merry Christmas. No, that feels weird. I'm so sorry. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. It's too early. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you, all of you. I have one brief announcement, but before I do, I wrote here huge on the top of my notes, and I completely forgot first service, and I completely forgot during the call to worship to acknowledge my friend who is standing right here, Mr. Seth Putnam on the guitar. Seth is, uh, yeah, you can get, let's cheer for Seth. He was amazing. He was wonderful today. I'll tell him he has to watch the live stream second service just to catch that moment right there. But we had a lot of sickness hit our worship team this week, and this is part of the beauty of being part of a great family of churches. Seth just happened to have the week off. He's a fantastic musician, and Seth has actually come a couple of times to our services and really loves it here at Midtown. He has a really cool story about meeting Pastor Jade back in 2006 when we were Freedom Church, and he had a really memorable moment with Pastor Jade, and so he particularly feels at home here, he said. And so I just wanted to acknowledge this is Seth Putnam. He primarily leads worship at New Life Friday night, and then he's the lead piano player on Sunday mornings at North, but he was with us today. So, so grateful for Seth. He had to run, but man, I hope he watches this just to get that moment. All right. I have one other announcement. So Lauren just announced that we are participating in a ministry for, uh, with Care Portal for Christmas, but there is a Thanksgiving outreach opportunity this Saturday. Okay. And if you're a Christian, then outreach is on your heart because God's heart is in your heart, all right? So you guys ready for this? Crossfire Ministries, which Crossfire Ministries is located a little more in the south of our city, but they're in the process of moving. I I believe in January, they will be right across Academy, Academy and Carefree on the other side of the road. Crossfire Ministries, which is a really large food bank, and they do food services throughout the city, is having a Thanksgiving packing day, and that is packing up foods for Thanksgiving to be distributed throughout our city this Saturday. And that information is also available at our Welcome Center right out there. Lauren Oskin will be there after service, and she can talk to you about both outreach opportunities. Now, I said in first service that I hoped there would be such a response that there wouldn't even be any spots for you guys at second service. But I am certain Even if we had all 10 spots filled, if you would like to participate, Lauren will make a space for you. So please go back there after the service and see if you can dedicate a couple of hours this Saturday for the welfare of our city. All right. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Once again, that's the most important thing myself or anyone will say all day today or really any day. So I want to make sure that we get that in and are reminded of the reason why we are gathered. We are not gathered because following Jesus just makes our lives so much better in the here and now. Sometimes that is the case, but sometimes following Jesus means that we have to do really hard things. And at least in the temporal, life is difficult because following Jesus means carrying a cross. But as Christians, we believe that one day he is returning to make all things new, and the resurrection is the sign of of what has happened to Christ already, is going to happen for all of us and the earth and the cosmos. As Christians, we believe that. So proclaiming that Christ is risen is actually the most important thing we could ever do when we are gathered as the body of Christ because it reestablishes our focus on what is this all about. So let's do it one more time. 
Christ is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Today we are speaking. I am speaking. You are listening. But you can speak back to me. You can speak back to me. From the book of Ruth, chapter 3. The last, last week we had Pastor Brent here. He and his wife Janice were uh, here for a marriage weekend and he spoke on a little bit of relationships and finding healing from our wounded places, the wounded places in our lives. But the previous two weeks, I spoke from Ruth chapter one and Ruth chapter two. And in Ruth one, the first week, I laid out some of the major themes. So everything you hear today, you will have already had a foretaste of in that first service, which means I'm not going to be saying much that is new, so please don't tune out. If you're anything like me, you need to hear things five, six, seven, eight, nine, and counting for them to actually take shape in your life. I know this is true for me, and I hope that you will hear something today and that the Spirit will water it, that it will bear fruit in your lives. I want to begin by asking a question, and then we're going to pray. Have you ever been at a crossroads and not known what God wanted you to do? Or have you ever been at a crossroads and known what you wanted to do, but weren't sure if it was what God wanted you to do? If that has ever been you, then this message, I think, has a word for you. And I, I think even if you don't recognize it as you, it's you, okay? We, we all, all the time, find ourselves on both sides of this spectrum. And so with those questions going in today, I want us to posture our hearts before the Lord. And I'll do just a little bit of setup, and then we're going to read the entirety of chapter 3. So let's pray. Lord, we bring before you our whole selves, our thoughts, our minds, our bodies, our spirits, our relationships, our resources, and, and all that it is to be each and every one of us, we bring into this space. And we ask that as we are laid bare before you, that you would bring us all that we need for the journey ahead of us. God, for those who need comfort in this moment, I pray that you would be comfort in this space. For those who need healing, Lord, would you be healing. For those who need provision, bring provision, and Lord, let it be through us, the body of Christ. We ask that you would speak to us, but not in such a way that just tickles our ears, but in such a way that changes who we actually are. So Lord, I pray that my mouth would be graced to speak a word today, and that the receiver's ears and hearts would be open for the seed of the gospel to be planted deep. And we ask it in faith, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together, God's people say, Amen. 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 So our question here speaks to the fact that there are situations all the time, in all of our lives, where we are just living life, doing our best to discern where God is at and what God wants us to do. And I want to ask another question here where I hone in on exactly what I'm trying to get at today in Ruth chapter 3. And that is the question, how do we discern God's work and how does it come to pass in our lives? How does it come to bear in our lives, God's work? And before we jump into the text, I want to make one distinction. That So on Saturday nights before I preach, typically I will rehearse some of the more complicated points with Bonnie, and she'll try and pick holes in it, which she is such a gift to me at doing. But it truly is a gift because it causes me 
to really think deeply about what am I really trying to say and what's not quite getting at it. And I want to make a distinction right here at the beginning between God's work and God's will. And sometimes there is significant overlap in those things, but sometimes God's work is coming on the heels of something tragic, something terrible, something that we know was not his will. But here's the beautiful thing about God. We know that in the midst of living in this really dark and broken and complicated world, that God's activity never ceases. And that in moments of severe brokenness, just like in Ezekiel 37, when there is nothing before us but bones and ashes, that even in those places, God's work is already happening. It's already happening. And, the, and what we have to be careful of is that we don't conflate the two, that we don't look and see God's activity and go, therefore, it must be his will that this happened. If we're looking at the story of Ruth, it would be really easy to go, well, all this wonderful stuff is happening in chapters 2, 3, and 4. Therefore, it must have been God's will for Naomi's husband and two kids to die in a famine in the land. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't believe that. And that's a really, really dark place to go. I think that we live in a world where awful things happen. And there are good Christian responses. There are no answers, but there are responses to those things. And that's not going to be the point of the message today. Today, I want to look at when God breaks in and when his kingdom breaks in. Sometimes in the midst of beauty and things going really well, and sometimes like in Naomi's and Ruth's life, where things look desperate and things look bleak, how is it that God's work tends to take shape and comes to bear on our lives? Are we together so far? Amen. Amen? All right, we're together. So I want us to read the entirety of the chapter of Ruth chapter 3. It's only 18 verses, and I'm going to do my best to read it with a theatrical, as a performance for you, so that you don't get lost in the text, all right? It'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to follow along. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor, and she did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. First time in history that's happened. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Note that, noble character. 
Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him. Sure, uh, let him redeem you. He is not willing. As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that the woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl which you are wearing and hold it out. When she, when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me those six, these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. So what happens here? So in chapter two, we read the story two weeks ago of Boaz's extravagant hospitality on behalf of Ruth and Naomi. So now they've come to the end of the harvest season. And after all of that extravagant hospitality, it was also temporary. The harvest is now over and they have food for a little while. But in this society, as two women, both widows, one of them an outsider, they will always be at the mercy of particularly men, but the mercy of the benevolence of other people, as long as they are in this situation. And so Naomi realizes, we're just going to be in this cycle unless something changes. They're desperate. They're at the end of their rope, and they need something to happen. And it seems like in a moment, Naomi has this epiphany, probably based on the character of Boaz as he has been showing hospitable kindness to Ruth and to her throughout this last season of the harvest. And she has this epiphany, this plan. Boaz is one of our kinsman redeemers. A kinsman redeemer, without getting into all the technicalities of the law, which actually at this time, scholars debate how much of this law is actually really being practiced anyways. But what it is, is a man... Uh, that is close in lineage, would buy back their property and all their possessions, and he would then take the woman as his spouse and take over the head of the family. In this case, it would be the head of Ruth and Naomi because there are no kids involved. And so this is what it is to be a kinsman redeemer. And typically it would go in order of progression. So there would be multiple men, relatives in the family. And as we heard from Boaz, he is one, but he is not the next of kin. So there's somebody else who actually has the right first to Ruth and Naomi and to buy back all of the property and to redeem them. But Boaz is in the family. He is a relative in the lineage here. So she has this plan and she proposes it to Ruth and Ruth says, I will go. She goes and we read all that happened and we'll jump in just a moment to what happens. But I wanna hone in on just a couple of verses there at the beginning, that this is the first time that Naomi has been assertive in any way, shape, or form in the whole story. So Naomi in chapter one, really the only assertive decision she makes is the decision to return home 
after the passing of her husband and her two kids. And then in chapter 2, there's not much that happens. We see there at the end of chapter 2 a glimpse of hope when Naomi says, bless the man who noticed you. But really, here we are at the beginning of chapter 3, and we see Naomi now asserting her will on behalf of someone else. That now Naomi is asserting her will. She's using the knowledge that she has that Ruth doesn't have to try and secure a future for Ruth is what she says. So she's asserting herself, but it's for the good primarily of Ruth. What exactly is happening? I want us to look back at chapter 1, verse 9. You don't, you don't have to turn there. It will be on the screen. This is actually the manifestation of a moment that was prayed for in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, uh, now Naomi is speaking to Ruth and Orpah. This is before the journey back to Bethlehem. And she says, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So Naomi had previously, two chapters ago, which was probably a few months ago at this point, she had prayed for Ruth to have a husband. And now she is embodying her own intercession. Now Naomi finds herself in a position to actually assist in the manifestation of the fruit of that prayer, to be part of the answer of the prayer that she prayed previously. And here's the thing. This happens over and over and over again in the book of Ruth. It happens at the threshing floor between Naomi and Boaz. So this scenario, I'm going to paint this picture with both of these examples, and then I want to make an appeal to us. So in chapter 3, verse 9, Boaz asks her, this is at the threshing floor in the dark, who are you, he asked. And she responds, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now that might sound unique and original, but actually... In the Hebrew, it's a throwback to a prayer that Boaz prayed over Ruth in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12, he says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. And what he's speaking about is traveling with Naomi, coming back, and then being willing to go into the field to provide for Naomi. So verse 12 there, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. Here's the key line under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So there's a little bit of a correlation in English, but in Hebrew, the word used for wings and the, the word used for garment here are actually the, the same word. So he prayed over her, may the Lord stretch out his wings over you as you have come to find shelter among the people of Israel. And what happens at the threshing floor is Ruth says, actually, why don't you do it on behalf of God? That's what happens here. In the Hebrew, that's basically exactly what is being said. So two times in one chapter, we see people acting in ways that are manifestations, embodiments of their own prayers that had been prayed previously in this book. Almost every prayer prayed and every blessing given in the book of Ruth comes to pass through the actions of the person praying the prayer and giving the blessing. Wow. That's pretty astounding. I mean, I mentioned this in the first week. So much of what we look for God to do and expect God to do and pray for God to do in our lives, what we're really thinking is God do this supernaturally. 
And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That God does do supernatural things in our lives. Probably not near as frequently as we would like him to, if we're honest with ourselves. But I think what God almost always has an invitation, a standing invitation to us, is for the things that we pray to them, embody them, and be willing to be disrupted in our lives to participate in the answering of those prayers. We tend to not think about, maybe I'll just speak for myself, y'all. I'll, I'll do what Sidron does. He gets up here and preaches, and then he's like, okay, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. But if the shoe fits, you know how it goes. I know that in my prayer life, so much of what I want God to do, I want supernatural intervention. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with wanting that. But are we open to the possibility that God might actually be extending an invitation to us to respond to our own prayer, sometimes on our behalf, sometimes on our behalf, and sometimes on behalf of others? This happens throughout the book multiple times, two times in this one chapter. God's refuge for Ruth required both Naomi and Boaz taking responsibility. So all the good that's going to come from Ruth in chapter 4 that we're going to talk about next week, it required two people being willing to pray for her and allow their lives to be radically changed in order that their lives might participate in the answer to that prayer. Are you with me? The next, I want to focus on where did this happen? So I, during the week, I was actually preparing to preach chapter 3, but it was an entirely different message. And on Thursday, I started to feel a little different about it, like, ah, this is true, but I don't know if it's for us. And then on Friday, it started to settle in, and then yesterday, I was, as I was doing one last pass-through in the afternoon of my notes, it hit me, I feel like there's some significance to the fact that this whole, the whole scene happens at a threshing floor. Like, it, it was lost on me how it was significant, but I knew there was something there. And then I started to think, well, literally speaking, what happens at a threshing floor? So in their, in their agrarian economy, what would happen is they go out and they gather the grain, and then they bring it to the threshing floor, which is the place of sifting and sorting. And they would take a winnowing fork, so in your mind, maybe just picture like a pitchfork, and they would throw it up in the air, and at the windy part of the evening, it would separate the wheat or the barley from the chaff because they were different in substance and they were different in weight. So they go to this place and they throw it up in the air and the chaff is blown away and the grain falls to the ground. This is a, a way of sifting and sorting between what's good, what we want to keep, and what is chaff. That word, we don't use it very often, except in church and in scripture, but it's, it's what we want to get rid of. It's what's going to be burned up. Well, so that's literally what happens. But throughout the minor prophets and the New Testament, we see allusions to the threshing floor that are typically associated with what? Judgment, exactly. Now, when you hear judgment, what I don't want you to think in this moment is fires of hell and the clouds with halos and little baby angels in heaven. Don't think about that now. Think about judgment in the sense of discerning what is like God from what is unlike God. So this whole scene happens at the threshing floor. 
It's a place, a physical place that embodies the process of discerning what is of God, what is like God, from what is not of God, what is not like God. And I think sometimes in our lives, what we want is we want to have an idea and we want to deliberate and we want in our process of deliberation for God to speak a resounding yes or a resounding no. And I think one of the many things we can learn from this passage is that oftentimes we're not going to get the resounding yes or no without taking steps toward the threshing floor. In other words, our plans need to be subjected to judgment. They need to be subjected and submitted is the word that we might use more often. We need to be able to bring plans to the threshing floor, to take a step in faith, saying, Lord, this is what's in my heart to do, and I'm taking a step toward the judgment that happens at the threshing floor. Now, obviously, we don't all need to go build a literal threshing floor. I'm speaking metaphorically here. But we all know of those situations in our lives where we want to do something or we don't want to do something, but we have a sense that we should. Or sometimes there's just genuine confusion. I really have no idea what to do. So what can we do? Take a step in faith and submit those things to the judgment of God at the threshing floor. Lord, what is of you? What, where are you wanting to speak into this? And then also, I think something else happens at the judgment of the threshing floor. Character is judged. And in this story, whose character is judged? Boaz's character. So think about this. It might seem like he really only has one option to us because there's this law that he has to take her as his wife. But that's incorrect for a number of reasons. One, he's not the nearest kinsman redeemer. So he could have said, I've been really kind to you lady, there's actually another guy and this is his responsibility. Or he could have exploited her. This whole scene happens in the dark at night. There could have been any number of ways he could have exploited her or he could have defamed her. He could have gone to the community. This is a man of standing. People listen when he speaks and he could have gone to them and said, this woman is not who you think she is. She came to me in the darkness of night and tried blah, 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 blah. So he could have defamed her, he could have sexually exploited her, or he could have, as I mentioned, just said, no, this is not my responsibility. I'm washing my hands of this. And even still, there's another matter that makes this more complicated. He's actually pit between two religious laws. On the one hand, there is the kinsman redeemer custom, this law about redeeming relatives when husbands pass for the sake of covering the family. But then there's also, in Deuteronomy 23, a place where the Moabites had been inhospitable to the people of Israel, and there was a curse spoken over them that they would not be able to participate in the assembly of the Israelites. So not only does he have these very fleshly human options that he could have chosen, but he's now pitted between two religious laws. Is he going to act with the character of God or is he going to act with the character of legalism that will allow him to technically wash his hands of the situation, but really he would be indicted for not having the character of God? And I think we find ourselves in these kinds of situations all the time. 
where we have 101, not Dalmatians, but good reasons for not doing really good things that we think are in the heart of God to do. And we can justify them all day long, up and down, with societal reasons, cultural reasons, economic reasons, reasons, even religious reasons, why we shouldn't do things. But guys, at the threshing floor, it's not just our plans that are weighed. It's our character. What is in us? What is in us will be revealed. And I don't know about you, but I want it to be revealed sooner than later so that the Lord can heal and correct and guide and make me into the kind of person that is going to say, you know what? I know there is this one law, but I think the heart of God would be to cover this woman and cover Naomi because they are of noble character. They are outside, or she is an outsider in this land. She's at the mercy of everyone else all the time and will be for as long as she lives if I don't take responsibility and do something about it. How often is God calling us to take responsibility for things and we are simply going, Lord, I need a word. I need a word. God, I'm just going to sit here on my knees and please hear me. I am not doubting prayer. I'm not doubting prayer. I'm saying that we must pray and be willing for our lives to be inconvenienced in such a way that we are able to then take responsibility for the people in our lives that we might rather not take responsibility for. Amen? So I want us to take one step back here and look at how is God's work coming to bear in the story? So in our mind's eye, let's take the 30,000 foot view. And I wanna, before we jump into this, this will be brief and then we're gonna come to the table. I want us to think about the ways in which in this story, we see almost no activity of God directly. I said this the first week. There are two things that are attributed directly to God. One is the opening of her womb at the end of the story. And the first is in chapter one, where Naomi says that the Lord has now ended the famine and brought provision to the people of Israel. But here's the thing. Both of those require human participation. So in this story, God does nothing apart from human participation, literally nothing from start to finish of the story. So zoom back and take the 30,000 foot view of what's happening. God's work healing was at, God was at work healing Naomi. When did it happen? I don't know. How did it happen? Over time. It happened somewhere between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter three. We see a substantial turnaround in Naomi's life. And nobody can put their finger on how or when it happened. It happened sometime over time as Boaz was showing kindness to Ruth and as Ruth was going to the fields to work on her behalf. Sometime in the process of the people around Naomi being good to her as she was close to them, the Lord restored her and she found healing. And how true is that in our lives when we feel most broken, most bitter, most unacceptable before the sight of the Lord, or we're angry with God and we just don't want to be around him. Those are the times when we need to be nearest his people more than ever. 
because there is a way of being around people who have faith and are exhibiting faith, even if it can't be found within you at the time, but it seeps in. And the, and the work of God is working beneath the surface just from being around his people. How was Naomi healed? I don't know. When was she healed? Sometime as Boaz was being kind and, and Ruth was working on her behalf. So God was also at work restoring the past. He was restoring the Moabites. I mentioned Deuteronomy 23. These are all the, the various angles and ways that we're seeing God's work in the story without actually seeing it. So the Moabites, way back in Deuteronomy, had been excised from the people of God. They had been forbidden from being a part of the assembly. Why? Because of a lack of hospitality shown to the Israelites. And now we have this little story of Ruth. And what happens? Israelites go to the country of Moab, and what do they find? Hospitality. And then not only do they find hospitality in their land, but Ruth agrees to accompany Naomi back to Naomi's homeland, and she continues to provide for Naomi as Boaz provides for her. So we have people who have been forbidden from the land for a lack of hospitality. Now that's being flipped on its head, and the Moabites are showing hospitality to this single Israelite woman. And through the engrafting of Ruth into the story, the Moabites have been restored back to the people of God. This is a way that you would never see it on the surface of the story, and you can't see it as it's happening. You only see it in hindsight. Huh, look what God was doing all along. God was at work in Naomi. God was at work restoring the past. And God was at work creating a new future. Boaz insinuates in this passage, and we'll see it more clearly next week in chapter 4, that Ruth is going to be getting more than she knows. She's getting more than just a husband. She's actually going to get a prized piece of very valuable land. Ruth doesn't know this. At least the text doesn't insinuate that she knows it. God is creating a future for Ruth far beyond what Ruth could ever have known. She's not going to be any longer just a welcomed outsider. She will be one of the members of the family. She will have found her people and her place in the people of God because of the actions of Boaz. Naomi, who had lost any chance of having children or grandchildren up to this point, in chapter 4, once again, we'll speak about this, I'll speak about this next week, finds herself as the wet nurse for her grandson, who is actually going to be the grandfather of King David. That might sound really weird. It kind of is. But the Old Testament is full of passages of barren wombs being opened up and women in old age having children. Like these kinds of stories happen throughout the scriptures. And I think they're pointing to multiple things, not the least of which is there is no history that is beyond God creating a new future from it. Like whatever tragedy has happened, yes, it happened. God doesn't undo it and make it as to bad things never happened. He, that's not the kind of God that we serve. But we do serve the God that in perhaps the death of Jesus brings life. And this happens over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. So not only is God at work in Naomi, well, we can't see it. He's bringing healing and restoration. He's healing and restoring the past from the Moabites. He's now creating a new future for every person involved in this story. There are blessings for Boaz he does not know of. 
There are blessings for Ruth she does not know of. There are blessings for Naomi that she does not know of. And there are blessings for you and me because of the lineage that comes from this woman that we only know of by faith in the scriptures. God is at work in this story creating a new future. And here's the thing. It all happened in the dark. It was hidden. We see the fruit of it, but we don't actually see God's work in the story. We see it happening in the dark as if it's a silhouette. So think of the scene at the threshing floor, because I think this scene provides us an image of God's work throughout the whole book of Ruth. Boaz wakes up, he's startled, and he senses that there is a woman, but he can't identify who she is or what she's there for. And how often is our life the same? Where we can sense that there's some activity happening. We sense that some, something over here is startling me, but we can't really put our finger on it. But you know when he comes to identify her? When she speaks. He can't see her for who she is, but he identifies her voice and she identifies herself as Ruth. And I think so much of our life with God is the same way. That it's like, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see through a glass or as in a mirror, darkly or dimly. Now we see in part. Then one day in the future, we will see in full and we will know him as he is. So right now, we are living our lives, making the best decisions that we can, taking responsibility for the things that we can, praying the prayers for the things and the people that are burdened in our heart. And all the while we're doing it, trusting that God is at work like a silhouette in our lives. And we're trusting, trying to identify, trying to listen to his voice. Is this you? Is this you? But one day, we will look back and we will see clearly. And we will see every place that God was at work in our lives. And we will be, I promise you, astounded. Because God is better than we could ever ask or imagine, as it says in Ephesians 3.20. God's work came through their actions. None of it was seen or discernible in the moments that it was happening. It was only seen and discernible as the fruit of those actions began to manifest. The Spirit presses us into responsibility. That's a quote from Jacques Ellul. He is, a, <clears throat> I believe, an economist, but he was a lay theologian. And he spoke about the work of the Spirit in our lives, not absolving us from responsibility, not God and come do what you do so that I don't have to do anything, but God, come do what you do as I do what I can do. As the Spirit presses us into responsibility, we are trusting that God is doing what only God can do. So, in closing, how can we live when we're not sure what God is up to? How do we live in those moments, those crossroads situations where we're trying to discern and we're trying to do what's best, but God's will is not written as with a finger on the wall for King Nebuchadnezzar, right? How do we live in those moments? Aaron, you can come. Number one... I think we should pray and be willing to participate in the answer. Pray and also be willing to embody your prayer. Sometimes all we can do is pray. Sometimes praying is not enough. 
And we have to trust the work of the Spirit in our lives to help us discern the difference. But I think the second point will help shed some light on that. Number two, how do we live when we're not sure what God is up to? Act in the best interest of those affected by our decisions. I mean, think this is perhaps the biggest part of the narrative that every major character throughout the story is constantly making decisions that are better for the other characters in the story. Naomi does it. She urges Ruth not to go with her because Ruth will have a better life in her homeland. Ruth refuses and comes along with her because she knows it's better for Naomi. Ruth goes out to the fields and Boaz knows that what's best for both of those women is for him to be extravagantly hospitable. Ruth goes to the threshing floor because it's good for her and Naomi. Boaz shows kindness to them because that's what's best for Ruth and Naomi. But he refuses to usurp the system and he says, there is another man who technically it's his right first. So we're gonna give him a fair shot tomorrow in the morning. Why? Because he's looking out for that man's best interest. Every person in the story is constantly looking out for the interest of the other people in the story. How can we live when we're not sure what God is up to? Number one, pray and be willing to participate in the answer. Number two, act in the best interest of those affected by our decisions. And number three, trust that God is doing what only God can do. In some ways, this is the easiest, but I think really it's the hardest. That we are trusting that in our actions, God is at work doing what he only can do. I mean, think about this story. Boaz in his own flesh could have been kind, could have been hospitable and generous. Ruth could have been a hard worker and gone to the fields. She could have in her own strength made the marriage proposal. But you know what none of them could have done on their own? Birth the baby that would then be King David's grandfather. None of them on their own could have restored the lineage of the people that we thought were most unlikely to be used in the story, the Moabites. So we do what only, we do what we can do, but God does what only God can do. And sometimes trusting that he's doing that is the hardest part of this walk of faith. Let's stand to our feet and we're gonna prepare our hearts to come to the table. And I actually think that the table presents us with a beautiful picture of how God's activity partners with our work in our lives. I'm gonna take this real quick and then I'm gonna invite you to come forward. Pretend that this is real bread and real wine, okay? Just in your mind's eye, this is beautiful, delicious food. God provides what only God can provide. And that is grain growing from the earth and grapes growing from the earth. But there is a reason that the history of the the Christian tradition doesn't serve grain and grapes. We serve bread and wine. What's the difference? One is cultivated from what God does alone, but bread and wine require human participation. They require men and women going out into fields and picking grapes and making wine out of them and picking the grain and taking it to the threshing floor and then choosing to crush it up and make bread. That there are certain things 
like this that could never happen without God. But here's the thing about God. He doesn't want them to happen without us, without our involvement. This is the way that God's work almost always takes shape in our life. So with that thought, with that idea, would you exit outside the left part of your pew, come forward, receive the elements, and go back to your, return to your seat, and we will partake in just a moment together. Come to the table of the Lord. I had some funny stories in this message, man. I had all kinds of stuff that I didn't get to. (laughs) And there's always more in the text, the deeper that I study and the longer that I go, there's just always more that I want to say. But I think the word of the Lord for us today is that God is at work when we are at work taking responsibility, doing what he has already called us to do. For some of us in the room, the tension point is doing something when we haven't heard clearly. And for some of us in the room, it's trusting that God is doing what he's doing in what we're doing. And I don't know where each and every one of you stand, but the most perfect example of taking responsibility is in God sending his son to come and take responsibility for our brokenness and our sinfulness in the body of Jesus Christ so that he could do something that only he could do. And this is what it is to be a Christian. It is to trust that God has done what only God can do in the life of Jesus Christ and in his resurrection, his death and resurrection. And one day that will happen fully to every one of us. Now that is happening in part But one day that will happen fully and we will be with him and we will be like him and we will see him as he is. So with the bread in your hand, on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Church, let us take the body of Christ and receive it as nourishment for our lives. after supper or dinner, depending on if you're from the South, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, this is the blood of Christ shed for you and for me. Let us take, let us receive. Thank you, Lord, for these good gifts. Let's sing the song of doxology that reminds us week after week after week that every good thing comes from the hand of God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures. 
this week empowered by the Holy Spirit knowing that you have been called out and set apart filled with the Spirit and you are called to look like Christ to the people around you go entrusting your lives and your decisions to the one who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine with our very lives so go in peace and confidence that God is at work in all that you are doing. Amen. You are dismissed.